Amen. Good morning. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and begin finding that, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. And as you're finding it, I would just like to take a moment and say thank you. Um, we have received lots of uh, diapers and gifts and all kind of things, and a lot of you are sneaky and don't put your name on it, so we don't know who they came from. Uh, so I figured as I had all of you together, I would just go ahead and say thank you. Um, we really appreciate it, and not just gifts, but your prayers and your encouragement, um, they mean the world to us, and we're so glad that we're here, um, we're so glad that we're, you know, as hard as this time of our life is, um, we're glad that God put us here with you, and so thank you, and we really appreciate it. As sort of a tie into that, and to segue into our sermon this morning, um, there are Moments, there are seasons in our lives where difficulty can become really overwhelming. That because of the world we live in, there's this kind of constant undercurrent of difficulty that runs in all of our lives, but there are periods and seasons where it just becomes a lot and it becomes a little overwhelming. And I think about that whenever I preach because I know that in a room, everyone came in here with something different this morning. Everybody had your week, and whatever your week looked like, and some of you, for some of you, the week was really good, and for some of you, the week was really bad, and we're all kind of in this one space together at this one moment in time, and church needs to be a place where everybody can come, no matter what their week was like, no matter what happened in their week, and so I know in a group of a couple hundred people that some of you are facing this kind of situation right now where there's just difficulty on you, that's weighing you down, that's crushing you. And so I think about that as I get up to, to preach, and I think, what, what do you say? What can, what can we say? What does God have to say to a situation like that? It may be that you're here and no one else is even aware of the fear or the darkness or the sadness that's just gripping your soul this morning, and you just came limping into church this morning, and nobody else is even aware for some of you, this difficulty could be pointed and sharp. It's a particular bit of news maybe you got this week that just wrecked everything. For others of you, it may be a longer season of time where there's just been something gnawing at you for this extended season. And it's rubbed against you like sandpaper to where you feel raw inside. And even those of you who aren't going through something like this, it's very likely that you know someone who is. Somebody in your family, a friend, a small group uh, member. And you wonder, what do I say to this person? What can I say? You have this love in you and you want to you say something that's going to help them, going to encourage them. You want to know how you can pray for them. And a lot of times in those situations, when we're faced with suffering in our lives or in somebody else's life, we just go, what do I say? What can I do? I don't have the resources for this. So the question we want to ask this morning is, what do we do? How do you handle situations or circumstances in your life that threaten you, that attempt to steal your joy, your peace, your happiness? And so this morning, we are continuing our journey through the life of David, and here he is right on the, the cusp of being king, and he's going to face what may be his greatest challenge to date. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, I'm going to read the entire chapter. And this will be the most flawless part of the sermon. 
because God's word is perfect, and so my reading may not be flawless, but this will be the most perfect part of the sermon, so uh, get ready. It's all downhill from here. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. And David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Ziphmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, 
in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This morning, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 30, I want to take it, I want to look at the story in sort of three movements, looking at what David did. And then I want to ask two questions to bring 1 Samuel 30 into our lives and to answer that question that we asked of what do we do in the middle of unbearable circumstances? So three movements of the story, focusing on how David acted. The first movement is that David prayed to the Lord in his distress. So we read the story, but you have to get it in your mind that David and his men, they're coming back. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about how they were with the Philistines and they were supposed to go to war with the Philistines against Saul and his armies because David's been playing this game, this, this charade where he's with the Philistines and he's for them, but really he's not. And so now he's put in this incredibly difficult situation where the king of the Philistines is like, you're going to go with me to fight against Saul. And David has to play along because he's afraid of what happened. But then the other generals of the Philistines say, we're not letting this guy go with us. He kills Philistines all the time. He can't go with us, so they send him back. So it looks like David is spared of this really difficult situation. And they're coming back, and it says on the third day they come back to Ziklag. Now imagine, imagine that, right? They've been marching for a couple of days. They're all a little relieved that they didn't have to go fight their own fellow Jews. And they're coming back to Ziklag. Maybe they're excited. Hey, we get to go back, see our families, see our kids get to sleep in our own beds. They wake up that morning, and they're so excited. They've just got this last little leg of the journey to go. And as they're going, they, they turn a corner, and they're expecting to see Ziklag on the edge, and maybe some of their wives and some of their children who would be surprised to see them so soon. But instead, they see smoke. Something's wrong. Maybe they start to run. They start to speed up. They say, what, what's going on? We have to go find out what's happening. And as they run, with each step, their heart drops a little more as they get closer, and they see their city's been burned and there's no one there. Their wives and their children are gone. 600 men in an instant lost everything. And it says they weep until they have no more strength left to weep. And as can happen in that kind of situation, you know, that, that fear, that, that sadness, it starts to turn into anger. It turns into rage and, and there needs to be an outlet for that anger. And so they're looking around, and where can we put this? The Amalekites are gone. Philistines are gone. But David's here. It's David's fault that we're here to begin with. He's the reason why we left Judah and came to live in Ziklag to start with. It's his fault we went with the king of the Philistines to try to fight against our own countrymen. We just barely escaped that, and we come back, and we weren't here to protect our families, and now they're gone. And it says they wanted to stone David. They wanted to kill him because they were so bitter in soul. And what David does next really shows us kind of how David's grown through this process. As we've walked through the life of David, David certainly had his ups and downs. It was not a constant upward trajectory in his spiritual life, but here he does the only thing he knows he can do. And it says there that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God there in verse 6. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God? There's a similar phrase to this in chapter 23. Just a few chapters before, uh, David is in great distress, and Jonathan comes. And in verse 16 of chapter 23, it says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Now, how did Jonathan do that? 
Verse 17, Jonathan says to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Now, what is Jonathan doing? Is Jonathan just saying nice things to kind of calm him down? You know how you may do that sometimes where it's, everything's going to be okay. And you don't know that everything's going to be okay, but you just say that because you think you're supposed to say that to make the situation seem better. Is that what Jonathan's doing? Like, David, don't worry. You're going to be king. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to work out. No, that wouldn't be strengthening his hand in God. Jonathan knew that David had been promised by God that he would be the next king. Jonathan knew that David had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. So when he says, you're going to be king over Israel, what he's doing is he's reminding David of the promises of God. He's pointing him back and saying, David, I know that the external circumstances right now look really desperate, look really bad, but I need you to focus on something beyond just the physical and the external. I need you to see the hand of God in this. I need you to see the promises of God. You need to be reminded of that. And so that's what David is encouraged by in chapter 23, and I believe that that's what he's doing here in chapter 30. He's rehearsing to himself the promises of God, and he's saying, Lord, you're good, and you've taken care of me up to this point, and you've promised good things for me. And so, no, I have no idea what's going on right now. I have no idea why this is happening, but I'm going to strengthen myself in you. He tells Abiathar to bring the ephod, and he prays. He ignores the men who want to kill him, and he goes to God. And notice what God's answer is. Look at David's question. David's question in chapter 30, verse 8 is, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And keep that in mind and listen to God's answer. He says, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. David didn't ask about rescuing. Maybe that was in his mind. We don't, we don't know. But God gives this word of hope there at the end, and he says, you will overtake them, and you will rescue. You'll rescue. They're not dead, David. Your family's not dead. You're going you're gonna to find these people, and you're going to rescue your family. And so with that word of hope, David sets out. So the first movement of the story this morning is that David prayed to the Lord in his distress. The second movement is that David acted on the promise of the Lord. David acted on the promise of the Lord. He's forced to leave 200 men, a third of his fighting force, behind because they're too exhausted. They've been marching for several days. The shock of this loss, they're just worn out. They can't do it. And so 400 continue on with David to go find these people. And they find an Egyptian slave that's just dying in the wilderness, basically. He's been left behind. And after they feed him, they start to ask him, Who are you and where did you come from? And he says, I'm an Egyptian. I'm a servant of Amalekite. I've been here you know, I fell sick three days ago, and my master just left me out here. Now, what's interesting about this is as you read that section about the Egyptian slave, you might ask yourself, why is this in the story? Right? It could have easily skipped from verse 10, 200 men stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook, and then like a little summary verse of David continued pursuing and he found the Amalekites. Right? Why do we need to know this story about the Egyptian slave? I think that one of the big reasons is that the, we would see the normal way that God sometimes keeps his promises. The just very natural, very seemingly normal way that God's going to keep his promises. God promised him, say, you will surely overtake and you will surely rescue. And so we might think, all right, how's God going to lead them to the Amalekites? We think he's God. He can do anything, right? He could turn the clouds into arrows and point the way with clouds. That'd be pretty awesome. 
He could, he could set a thunderstorm. You know, in the middle of the desert, he could set a thunderstorm right over the camp of the Amalekites with thunder and lightning and just light up the place like a spotlight going, here they are, David, go find them. Be a pillar of fire. I mean, anything. God could do anything. So what does God do? He sends him a tired, sick Egyptian who got left behind. Really? And this is kind of a side note of the story of God's doing things in your life constantly. But a lot of times it looks so normal that we miss it. God's up to 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of five? And the reason why we miss out so much on seeing what God's doing in our life is that we're expecting pillars of fire, parting the Red Sea, something like that, and we miss out that sometimes God just sends us a person. God just sends us a person who knows what we need to know and is going to tell us, and that seems kind of ho-hum, okay. That wasn't really flashy. But God's still keeping his promises. So don't miss out. As you look at your life, as you go through your week, as you go through your day, and you, you've been praying for things, and Pastor Mike made this point a couple weeks ago of, you know, we want the really big, flashy things if we've been praying for a job. We want some kind of weird, miraculous story to happen, but it might just be that, you know, a friend hears you need a job, and they say, hey, you know, I got, I got an opening. That's an answer to prayer. That's God working, and it may not look stupendous and you know it may not make headlines you may not be able to write into christianity today and have an article printed about how your friend knew about a job opening but that's still god moving that's still god working in your life and don't miss out on what god's doing because it just looks ordinary and also don't miss the fact that david had to act right as we get the promises of god there can be a temptation that we would lapse into a kind of laziness that says well god's promised it and god keeps his promises so do I have to do anything? Do I have to do anything? If God's promised to make this happen, then God's going to make it happen, and I can just kind of sit back and relax. Now, David didn't have that kind of view of God. He said, God's promised, and in the strength of that promise, I'm going to go and I'm going to act. He still had to pursue. He still had to fight, but he got his strength from the promise in order that he would act. He didn't let it let him become lazy. He didn't just stay in Ziklag and say, well, God said I would overtake and God said I would pursue. So guys, we can just take a nap. Now he went out in the promise and said, because God promised, I'm going to act. I'm going to do it. So don't let the promises of God let you become lazy. Take them and find your strength in them. And in the strength of those promises, we act. So David acted on the promises of God. He came, he went after him, he pursued him, he finds them. And he strikes him down for an entire day. And then the third movement of the story. God saw the, or David saw the hand of God in victory. Movement number three. David saw the hand of God in victory. So after he strikes down the Amalekites and he rescues his wife, him and the men return. And they come to the men who are left at the brook. These 200 men. And it says that David greeted them. Which we might think that's just him saying, Hi guys, welcome back. We're here. We got all your stuff. But it's really more of an idea of he asked how they were doing. David cared about these men. These were his men. And so when he greets them, he's not like, you bunch of worthless, lazy, tired people. Didn't help us out. No, he says he greets them. How, how are you doing? Do you, do you guys feel better? Which shows amazing compassion that David has for his men. And then these, it says, worthless and wicked fellows. 
probably the same guys who wanted to stone David a couple of days earlier, say, we're not going to give these people anything because they didn't go with us, they didn't fight. They can take their wives and their kids and they can leave, which would have left them in a very bad situation because now they have a wife and kids but no property, no house, no uh, anything. They'd be completely destitute and homeless. It would leave them in a really bad situation. And David says, what are you guys talking about? No, we're not going to do that. And listen to what he says. He says, you shall not do so. This is verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Now, this is what I think is interesting. David's correction of them boils down to him telling them they have bad theology. When David corrects them, he's essentially saying, you don't understand God. And so this is the thing. This is so practical, because a lot of times, theology gets such a bad rap. Doctrine divides. We've all heard that. We don't want to study theology. We don't want to get too deep in that stuff, because then people just become argumentative. They just start getting into their little tribes, and it just ruins churches when people study theology. Well, David says, the reason why you're being greedy is you have bad theology. You don't see the fact that the Lord is the one who's given us everything, that it's his hand that's been in this victory. He's the one that preserved us and gave this band into our hands. So what he says is, you need a better theology of who God is and his work in your life. And if you would have that, then it wouldn't lead you to become so stingy and so greedy with the things that God's blessed you with. I mean, how practical is that? That as you're looking at your time, as you're looking at your money, as you're looking at the things that are in your life, do you look at those things and think, I've gotten all these because I'm so smart and I'm so hardworking. All this is mine, and I can use it however I want to. If I give a little bit to the church, well, that's, my, that's my choice. If I give a little bit of this to help people in need, well, that's, that's my prerogative. But if I don't want to, then I don't have to because it's all mine. David says, you've got bad theology. He says, everything you've got is a gift from God. The breath you're breathing right now is a gift from God. The fact that you woke up this morning is a gift from God. The fact that you were born where you were born so you could do the things that you do, those things were gifts from God. And if you don't recognize that, then you miss out on all the joy and all the freedom and all the peace that comes with using what you have, not for your glory, but for God's glory. And you hold on to things and you grasp things. I mean, think about the perspective that these guys had that changed so quickly. They went from having nothing to being unwilling to share anything within a span of about 48 hours. Right? Think of what they would have given up to get even half of this back. And now that they've got it, they say, oh, we don't want to share. We don't want to. You're not going to get any of this. Take your wives and your kids and go. David says, you're not thinking rightly. You're not, you don't think right about who God is and how he's acting in this. Yes, you went out and fought, but it is God who gave us this victory. And in our lives, that's exactly the same thing. You may be fantastic at your job. Who gave you your brain? God did. Who organized your life so that you would have the connections that you have to get the opportunities that you've gotten? God did. God did all of that. Don't miss seeing that, and don't miss out on the freedom. Listen, who do you think was happier in this situation? Who do you think had more joy in this situation? You think it was David, who saw these things as gifts from God that he could use freely to bless others? You know, he sends these to several towns and villages where he had, he had journeyed, and he says, hey, I want to give you a present. It says to his friends, the elders of Judah. He says, I want to give you a present from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. Who do you think was happier in this situation? The greedy, wicked, worthless men? Or David, who stands there with open hands and open arms, says, 
Listen, all this is God's, and I'm just going to give it freely. I guarantee you David's the happier of the two. I guarantee you he's got more joy. You know, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say not to care about treasure. Jesus doesn't say don't care about treasure. He says, be careful where you lay it up. He doesn't say treasure's not important. He says, don't put it in places where wrath and must destroy and thieves break in and steal. He says, be better and wiser about where you put your treasure. Jesus says, treasure's good. You just got to put it in the right place. Anyway, that's, that's maybe another sermon for another day. <laughs> All right, so those are the three movements in our story. We get to the end of the story, and David's giving these presents out to these cities. He's instructed his men, says the Lord's given us all this. So David prayed, he acted, and he saw God's hand in all of this. Now, we get back to our question of, what do we do? So I want to ask two questions as a way of application for this, and there'll be kind of some sub-questions within that, but two big questions. One is, where do you turn when things look hopeless? Where do you turn? Where do you go when things look hopeless? Like I said, I know there are people here facing difficult situations, and difficult is not even a good enough word. You know, Tetris is difficult. What you're facing is incredibly more so. You're teetering on hopeless. Whether it's a job that's crushing you, a marriage that's crumbling around you, kids that are breaking your heart, financial struggles that are shredding your peace, whatever it is, where do you, where do you go? You don't want to get out of bed. You barely made it here this morning. You don't feel like talking to people because then you have to pretend like everything's okay because you can't be honest, you don't feel like. So what can you do? Where can you go when life is pounding you into the ground? You go to God. You strengthen yourself in the Lord your God because you need strength. You need supernatural, divine strength. You can't manufacture it. You can't go out and buy it. You can't exercise your way up to it. It has to be a gift from God. And so where do you go? You go to the God of all strength, the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe who cares for you. And you go to Him and you say, Lord, I need strength. I don't have any strength. And the God who speaks galaxies into existence, He can give you strength. How's he going to give you strength? How do you find it? You take the promises in this book and you drill them into your soul. I have three examples for you. Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's not just the postscript on the Great Commission. That's God's promise to you. Jesus saying, I am with you to the end of the age. As long as time's going... I'm not going to leave you. And this is the Jesus that has risen from the dead, paid your sin debt in full, and says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. There is nothing outside of my control. There's nothing outside my command. Every atom in the universe is subject to me. And I'm with you always. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. God says, fear not. For I am with you. And be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So you get in a situation, you don't know what to do. You just cry out. Isaiah 41.10. God, you said you would strengthen me. You said you would help me. You said you would uphold me. God, I need you to do that. That's what you say, and you're not a liar. So I need you to strengthen me, and I need you to help me. That's what you promised you would do. Psalm 145, a psalm of David, verses 18 through 20. says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry, and He saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him. He hears their cry and He saves them. So you take those. You can find hundreds and hundreds more. You take those and you drill them deep into your heart. You preach them to yourself. And as you do that, your perspective on your pain will start to change. Because this book is is, is unlike other books. You start quoting a history book to yourself. You start quoting an encyclopedia to yourself or your favorite fiction book to yourself. That's going to have no effect on you whatsoever. This book isn't like other books. You You start quoting this book. God accompanies His Word with power. This book will change things, not because it's magical, but because this is God's Word. And He will accompany it with power. Before we get to our last question of application, though, there may be a a sort of question that's kind of lingering in the back of your mind, maybe a little bit unformed, but saying, how can I really know that I can trust the promises of this book? There's a lot of books out there. A lot of other religious books out there. How do I trust this book? How do I trust that these promises, that God's going to actually keep His promises? How do I trust that? What's, what's the foundation of this faith? What's the, what's the grounding, the bedrock that all of this is sitting on so that when I'm in the middle of very real, very tangible, very felt suffering, that I don't feel like I'm just shooting arrows at a tank? What's going to ground all of this? So keep that question in your mind as we get to the second big question of application, which is, what do you see as your greatest need? We're talking about hopeless situations. What do you see as your greatest need? God delivered David from what looked like an impossible, even a hopeless situation. And as you look at your life, you may have all sorts of things that you would fill in that blank of what's the most difficult, what's the most hopeless situation in my life. It may be those things we mentioned. It may, you may put a marriage in there. You may put a relationship with your children in there. You may put a job situation. You may put any of those things in there. That's my greatest need. If that would get fixed, then everything else would just sort of take care of itself. But the Bible is clear that your greatest need, my greatest need, is not physical. It's not a job. It's not a marriage. It's not a relationship with my kid. It's not any of those things. My greatest need is spiritual. The most hopeless situation that you and I have ever faced is our own sinfulness. Our own sin is the most hopeless situation that we've ever faced. You say, how is that? Let me show you. We, like David's wives, we were captured by sin. 
Romans 6.17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul says you were a slave to sin. But not just to sin. We were also captured by the devil. 2 Timothy 2.26, They, he's talking about unbelievers, he says, They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here we are in our sin. We are slaves to our sin. We've been captured by the devil to do his will. And that would be bad enough, but it gets worse. It says what made our situation even more desperate is the fact that we liked it. It's the fact that we enjoyed being enslaved to sin. We enjoyed being captured by the devil. I think that's why in 2 Timothy 2.26, he says, they may come to their senses, because they're not in their senses. People apart from Christ, they're not in their senses. You look at it and you say, you are a slave to sin. You're being captured by the devil to do what he wants you to do, and you like it? You enjoy it? That's why Paul says they have to come to their senses. They have to have their eyes open so they would see that this is not reality. This is not good. This is insane. So what made our situation so desperate is that we didn't even want to get out of it. Our flesh did not want God. Two verses, Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the flesh, your natural who you are, those desires, those wants are against the Spirit. They are making war against the Spirit and what He wants. Even stronger, Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How is everyone born in the flesh? Who does not please God? Those who are in the flesh. That means every single one of us at birth, we could not please God. We did not want to. We could not. And so what makes all of this so hopeless is that our sin had captured us to be a slave. The devil had captured us to do his will, and we didn't want to get out at all, even if there was a way out. And we know that the wages of sin is death, so this road that we're on is headed towards destruction, headed towards eternal separation from God, eternal separation from everything that's going to make us happy, eternal separation from everything that's going to make us alive and who we were made to be, and we enjoy it. So what what happens? What's God going to do in a situation that's that hopeless? And what happens next is absolutely critical for the grounding of your faith. Jesus, the son of David, the better king, goes after his bride, his people, to purchase them for himself. And he goes, not at the risk of his own life. David went after his family at the risk of his life. Jesus comes after his bride at the cost of his life, knowing that he will have to bleed and die in order to save his bride. In order to purchase his people for himself, he's going to have to die in their place. He's going to have to suffer. It's not a risk, it's a guarantee. And the scene in heaven after he has poured out his life, died and risen again, the scene in heaven is of a triumphant, resurrected king who comes back having done all that he set out to do, having purchased his bride, and she is now safe forever in his love and transformed by his grace. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. 
This is really what's so wonderful about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is not just about Jesus, a prophet, coming to Jerusalem to die where all the other prophets die. He's not just a teacher come to say a few last great things before he leaves. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Behold your king riding on a donkey. Behold your king. He is the prince of heaven who has come to get his bride back. His bride that is in sin. His bride that is guaranteed death. His bride that doesn't actually want anything to do with him. He's come for them anyway. He's come to rescue them. He's come to save them. He's come to make them his own. And he's going to take all the wrath of God to do it. He's going to be rejected by everyone. Even his heavenly father. He's going to suffer more than any of us have or will ever suffer. And he did it out of love. He did it because he wanted us. So as you think about that, that's the ground that your faith is set on. Where do you look? You look at the cross. When cancer comes, you look at the cross. When a miscarriage happens, you look at the cross. When a spouse dies, when a child dies, you look at the cross no matter what happens. You look back and you see Jesus. You see God the Son pouring out His life for you. You see that God demonstrated, He showed, He proved His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you set everything you have on that. And you will be unshakable. And listen, you may not understand why what's happening is happening. That's okay. That's understandable. God doesn't call you to understand. He doesn't give you all the answers. But because this book is true, because Jesus is who He said He is, because He did what He set out to do, even when things look hopeless, even when you don't know what's going on or why it's happening, you can trust Him. You can look at the cross and you can trust Him. The invitation of this good news is that we would trust Christ. And for many of you, you have believed in Jesus. You trust Him. You've received Him as Christ, as Lord, as King. But you're facing this difficult situation and it's so easy to kind of drift away from that. To lose sight of Jesus and just focus on what's happening here right in front of me. This morning, put your attention back on Jesus. Put your attention back on this one who loved you and gave himself for you. Put all of your attention on that. Put all of your focus on that and rest all of your faith on that. It doesn't have to be a strong faith. It matters not how strong your faith is. It matters who your faith is in. You may say, I don't have faith to do this. I'm just weak. I'm unable. I can't do it. You don't have to be strong. Jesus is strong. He's strong enough for the both of you. Just run to him. Fall into his arms. Say, Jesus, 
Be my strength. Jesus, be my rescuer. Be my redeemer. Be my savior. Be everything. And for some of you, you may have never done that before, and you're saying, what in the world is all of this? I never thought about my sin like that. I never thought about what Jesus did like that. But that's the truth. That's really the situation that you're in, and that's really what Jesus has done. And if you're seeing that for the first time, I would invite you to just come to Christ. That someone who would love you like that, someone who would pursue you like that, go to him. Put all your faith in him. Refuse to trust in anything else and say, Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to pray for us and Nick's going to come and I'm going to be down here. And if you'd like to pray, I'd love to pray with you and for you. If you have questions about, I just didn't understand this part about coming to Christ and this part about sin and him saving me. I don't understand all that. I'd love to talk to you. But other pastors would love to talk to you. Let's pray.